Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thank you all for being with me today. And if you like what I'm doing, please like, subscribe, or leave me a comment. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matthew Lapoire. So yeah, glad to be with you all for a midweek show. I uh, finally got around to finishing that presentation I mentioned in the marker video. And we're going to get into everything I wanted to. So we're going to talk about Sarepta, Biogen, Amaranth, Immune, as well as Gilead. And Gilead is the company I want to put a trade on tomorrow, so I want to get this out there. And it's in anticipation of the upcoming advisory committee meeting that we're going to see next week. So we're going to talk about that as well as some earning reports and some ISA reports. So let's uh, jump into it. Despite the uh, tumultuous week that we've had, we got the federal funds rate cut on Wednesday. And then today we heard that Trump is going to uh, put in some tariffs against China. So been up and down, but the XBI itself has actually been hanging in there. I think it was above 87 before the tariff announcement where it just closed below 86. So not too bad considering the uh, XBI has been lagging overall of the, the big indices. So that's good to see. So let's start with Sarepta. And what I want to talk about with them is the ICER report that came out uh, maybe a month ago now. And for those who don't know, ICER is the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. It's this what they claim nonpartisan organization that aims to provide guidance to companies as well as regulators on drug pricing and cost effective analyses. So they have a tough job to do, I think. I think it's tough to quantify the value of, of life and they have to do it and put a price price tag on things given certain assumptions. So it's definitely not easy and they get a lot of hate no matter what they say, but they do provide concrete uh, recommendations to the public as well as uh, advisory committees and this is important for us because these decisions are very important on whether or not uh, a therapy actually gets to patients or not. So the report that came out that involves Sarepta was their DMD ICER report and this looked at the different PMO exon skipping technologies as well as corticosteroids for people with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And it was pretty negative against Sarepta. They pretty much said, and, and I have a quote here, but basically at the price of Edeplirsin and probably Golodirsin, <laughs> there was no plausible treatment effects to make this treatment cost effective uh, given certain thresholds. So that's uh, definitely not good for, for Sarepta, even though Edeplirsin has been approved for a couple of years now. And it's not great for Golodirsin, but I, I do think that a lot of the value of Sarepta today is in their gene therapy, not so much these PMO exon skipping technologies. So I don't think long term it's really going to hurt the company. And just so everybody's aware, the PDUFA date for Golodirsin is August 19th. And I, I do think if they got a no from the FDA, it would be a bit of a hit to the stock. But like I said, the most of the value of the stock is in their gene therapy for microdystrophin. So that's all of what I want to say about that. Moving forward, let's talk about Biogen. So Biogen had their earnings recently, and if you look back at my previous video, I talked about how uh, Biogen might be a good short if certain conditions were met. And one of those conditions is the ending of their stock repurchase program. And they actually had two programs, a 2018 and 2019 one. And what they mentioned in this latest report, and the stock actually bumped up on the news, and it was due to some better-than-expected sales for, for one of the drugs, but uh, it wasn't that wasn't the thing that I focused on. So what I looked at the report, what I found was that they purchased 6.4 million shares as part of their 2018 stock repurchase plan, and that was $1.5 billion. 
and then they they purchased 3.9 million shares of a total of 0.9 billion dollars as part of their 2019 plan and this happened in the second quarter of this year so biogen is still going to spend 4.1 billion dollars on their own stock you know whatever happens in in terms of catalysts that are coming up 4.1 billion dollars are going to flood into the stock until whenever so there's no expiration date on this i think i'm going to keep watching every earnings report to see how far we get till this reaches zero and then maybe consider shorting the stock but on the bear side one a couple of things that i mentioned is that their pipeline has a lot of these alzheimer's trials that are likely not going to lead to positive results and just to illustrate my point we saw that roche ended a program early and that drug was a similar one to what biogen has in the pipeline right now and then we recently heard maybe a week or two ago that abby stopped a phase two trial for their anti-tau antibody for progressive supranuclear palsy. And Biogen also has a, an anti-tau antibody, and they're looking at PSP here, this BBIB092 compound, and they're gonna see a readout at the second half of this year. So I think that all of these Alzheimer's trials are, are pretty much in jeopardy. I don't think we've heard much about this Ionis MAP-T uh, compound here, but all of their amyloid beta drugs and their anti-tau drugs might be in jeopardy. So I think that the, the growth potential of the company is, is very limited. And we also see that when it comes to their recently launched products like Spinraza. So we see here on the report that Spinraza growth has leveled off. Uh, growth for Q2 is 15% year over year as opposed to 108% year over year the year before. So, and this is due to obviously more competition that we saw from uh, Avexis and Novartis with their gene therapy. And uh, yeah, so I think it's too early to short Biogen for sure, but I'm definitely keeping my eye on them. All right, moving on, we had Viking earnings today, actually, they had the call. And uh, overall, I, I was bored to tears by the earnings call. It's just nobody was going to ask the question, but really what I wanted them to ask was, why are they taking so long to, to submit their pre-IND thing and get all this stuff together? We, we saw, and I commented on this, that Contravere was able to get their data submitted to the FDA, get feedback, submit the IND, and then get recommendations off of that IND within like a month or two. And for Viking, we're, we're in August now, and it's just taking them forever. So, you know, I don't know how the shorts knew that Viking was going to take forever to get this done, but obviously it's paid off for them, and the stock is sitting at like seven and change. So that uh, that really sucks and I would like to see them get their act together and get moving on this stuff but they mentioned that they submitted their pre-IND package and they're gonna get a written notice from the FDA in a couple of weeks and they're hoping to start their phase 2B in NASH in the second half of this year so we'll uh, we'll see when that happens but we're, we're not gonna really see a readout until like well into 2020 so it's uh, it's pretty disappointing and I have a decent amount of my portfolio in Viking unfortunately and uh, it's going to have to stay there because I'm not going to sell. So that's that. And I also wanted to mention that Oppenheimer analyst Jay Olson decided to initiate coverage on Viking. And when I first saw this, I was really excited because, you know, getting new coverage on a stock that you like is, uh, is a good thing. Hopefully he's going to do his due diligence and his analysis and give a good price target. And he gave one at 12. But then when I looked at this tip ranks website here, I saw that unfortunately Jay Olson is ranked... 5,168 out of 5,245 analysts 
His success rate is only 33% with an average return of negative 10.6% annually. So that was uh, that was disappointing to see. And I hope that Viking happens to be within his successful picks and, uh, and not the ones that have lost, even though he's had a pretty bad track record. So anyway, the main things I want to talk about today are the Amun ISA report, Amarin ISA report. They also reported earnings and not much to say there. Everything's looking good. And then we're going to finish up with the Gilead Adcom. So going back to, to the ICER reports, uh, they've been busy over there at ICER, pumping out all these things, giving recommendations. But basically, the report on Amun was very, very negative. They pretty much said that the risk-reward for patients wasn't worth it. And they did put price tags on the, the therapy to, to give a certain value of a certain quality-adjusted life year. But their, the, the language that they used was that they don't see enough data to show that AR101 is actually going to benefit patients because there is a risk that they're going to get anaphylaxis from this. And it's really due to this review here from Chu D et al. And this is a systematic review that, that looked at both homebrew methods as well as AR101 and looked and, and saw whether or not there was an increased risk of anaphylaxis in these patients. And he did see that but he really lumped in everything together. There's way more trials that were done with homebrew type methods of peanut protein than there are with ones that were used from, from Amun. So lumping it all together, I don't think is necessarily accurate to say that AR101 uh, poses a higher risk and it just didn't seem to match the, the data that they provided. So the, the data from the systematic review was much more negative than what Amun provided. So I'm not convinced it's fair to look at this review here and say that this is why the AR101 treatment isn't a good thing for patients. But going back to the ICER report here, they mentioned that the reason for the ICER downgrade from what they provided earlier is this Lancet review. So Dr. Chu here had a real effect in changing ICER's mind, but it did seem like the quality-adjusted life year cost threshold analysis was pretty appropriate for what I've heard. I think $5,000 a year is what's been thrown around loosely, and I don't have a citation for that, unfortunately. But if you were to take that price, it is within the range of appropriate to, to give a cost-effective analysis to make it worth it for patients. And if we use that and multiply it by the number of diagnosed and actively managed PA patients, we're, we're left with $6 billion per year as an estimated revenue that Amy could see. And of course, this is the high end there's no way that they're going to see this kind of revenue from the USA every year. But the debate really lands on how much of an overestimate is this. And I think that they're going to do a lot better than what the market is suggesting by their valuation right now. Going back to the report here, just uh, I wanted to show what they recommended here. And they gave a big list of recommendations based on the different people in the field. And they said for researchers, they recommend that longer placebo-controlled trials are needed to demonstrate that desensitization translates into outcomes that matter to patients. And I thought that this was laughable because the whole point of Amun is to provide an outcome that's going to matter to a patient. And I thought that these recommendations just illustrated that ICER didn't really understand the kinds of benefits that an oral immunotherapy would provide to patients. So the next thing they said is that researchers needed to develop biomarkers, both for initiation of therapy and to support the decision about when it is safe to go off desensitization treatment. And Amun has said that it will never be safe really to go off desensitization treatment. And they've also mentioned that there are biomarkers. So this peanut-specific IgE over IgG4 ratio is instrumental in seeing how 
peanut allergy patients can be less or more sensitive to the protein. So it's just another example of how ICER doesn't really know what they're talking about, if you ask me. So anyway, it's still a bearish report, and it will be used in this advisory committee meeting that's coming up in September. I think that advocates for peanut allergy, though, in this adcom are going to be supportive of Amune's AR101 in, in peanut allergy. So despite this negative report, I do think that the uh, adcom is going to be positive for the stock. So I'm holding. All right, let's move on to Amarin. Amarin, everyone's favorite fish oil company. So uh, they provided, ICER provided a draft evidence report. So this is a report um, before the big report, I guess. And uh, it's still open to public comment, so if you looked at it and you didn't like what you saw, go in there and leave something juicy for them to look at. But basically, they compared uh, Xarelto, which is a Janssen product, and Vesepa as a way to combat cardiovascular disease. So uh, for those who don't know, Xarelto is an oral direct and selective inhibitor of factor 10A in the blood coagulation pathway. And for those who don't know, and I've talked about this before, but Vesepa is a product from Amarin. It's a purified omega-3 fatty acid known as EPA. And Vesepa is looking to get expansion of their indication to treat patients with a triglyceride level of over 150 rather than what they are right now, which is 500 milligrams per deciliter. So this uh, report was generally very positive for both Xarelto and Vesepa. A little bit better for Vesepa, if you ask me, because it shows that the cost-effectiveness analysis is, is in their favor. They gave the evidence rating a B plus, which is very good. And if you look at the threshold analysis price here, uh, so the net price, including discounts that come in in general for Vesepa is $1,625. And if you look at the annual price to achieve a $50,000 per year quality adjusted life year, it's 3,433. And Vesepa is about half that. So it shows that the cost effectiveness is definitely in Vesepa's favor. And uh, they did have an earnings report, I think yesterday, and they mentioned that they're, they believe it's unlikely they're gonna get an advisory committee. And in general, I, I agree with that. I think it's pretty late because the PDUFA date is coming up. They got that priority review. So it should be no problem for them to get approval from the FDA for the expansion of their label. All right, so let's get to the feature story of today that I wanna to talk to you all about, which is Gilead. So for those who don't know, Gilead is one of the juggernauts on the market today. They've, uh, they've been very successful in liver disease products, especially viruses. So they've had very, very good success in hepatitis C, hepatitis B, as well as HIV. And they've made acquisitions to get into different spaces. So uh, the one notable one that's been pretty recent is Kite, where they now have this Yaskarta CAR-T product for different B-cell cancers in the blood, and they've been seeing success with that in that rollout. But uh, basically, a lot of issues they've been having is replacing these big blockbuster drugs with new ones. And we've seen this in hepatitis C, they haven't really been able to replace that lost revenue. So that's been consistently decreasing. And HIV, they've still been able to maintain some growth, but that's slowly starting to deteriorate as well. Uh, we see them trying to expand into Nash, even though I don't think they're really serious about it because they're not really making any big acquisitions. They're kind of dabbling right now. But we do see that in HIV, they're continuing a lot of R&D projects and making a lot of interesting calls to try and maintain that revenue. And the story I'm going to tell today is, uh, is a great example of that. So for those who don't know, Truvada is indicated for HIV treatment and prevention, even though it's not the main treatment regimen anymore, there's better drugs for that, but 
it is the only product that's indicated for pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP for those who haven't heard of it before. Gilead's going to lose exclusivity for PrEP in late 2020, and it's bringing in right now about 2 to $3 billion per year. So Gilead's trying to figure out a way to replace that revenue, and how they're going to do that is replace Truvada with a new compound called Discovi. And Discovi is uh, it's pretty similar to Truvada. There's a couple differences that make it better. But basically, to get the approval for that label, they did a discovered trial to demonstrate non-inferiority of the two compounds for prevention of infection. They gave a big group of patients who were at risk of HIV infection either Truvada or Discovi and saw whether or not one had a higher infection rate or not. The difference between the two compounds is pretty hard to see from the outset. It's easier to see in terms of the actual side effect data that we see, but to give a bit of color to this, Truvada is made up of two drugs, tenofovir disoproxyl, as well as emtricitabine, whereas Discovi is made of tenofovir alafenamide and emtricitabine. So it's these two compounds, and they're both some kind of reverse transcriptase inhibitor. One is a nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor, and the other one's a nucleotide reverse transcriptase inhibitor. Really just means one has the phosphate and the other one doesn't in terms of the, the way it replicates a DNA base. And this is important for uh, replication of the virus. So I'm going to refer to these two compounds as TDF and TAF moving forward because it's a little bit easier. But basically the old compound has bone and kidney side effects, whereas the new compound doesn't have those problems. And it also has better antiviral activity as well as distribution into lymphoid tissue. So we'll see this in the data a little bit later. And there's actually litigation going on right here because people are trying to show that Gilead intentionally hid the results of TAF because they knew that TDF would still have activity, but it would be superseded by this TAF. So they wanted the exclusivity of both these compounds to not overlap. So it's a, it's kind of interesting for those who are interested in law and patent law and things like that. But yeah, that's a, that's kind of an aside there. So basically, after the results of Discover have come out, they filed a supplemental NDA, and the FDA issued them notice of an advisory committee, and that's coming up next week. So that's why I want to put this trade on. But let's look at the data. So what they showed here is patients that took TAF versus patients that took TDF showed basically no difference in infection rates. TAF showed 7 infections, while TDF showed 15. And if you look at the incidence rate ratio with 95% confidence interval, it favors TAF slightly, but basically it's non-inferior. And this is what the researchers were looking for. To get more detailed in the data, they did say that five patients in total showed a potential infection before they started taking the drug. So they, uh, they also wanted to take account for the potential risk that these patients were screened and everything, but they may have also been infected prior to infection. And these are just kind of uh, particular details that aren't super important, but it's good to see that they're doing their due diligence to make sure that they know when the infection probably happened. And even with this information, it still shows that both compounds are, are non-inferior to each other. So then the important things that we're looking at as well is whether or not there were these side effects. So they showed using bone mineral density analyses that people using TDF had decreases in bone mineral density in the spine as well as the hip whereas the TAF did not show that difference, so that's a, that's a real positive for TAF. And then when they looked at EGFR, glomular filtration rate here, which is a proxy for kidney function, 
they showed with statistical significance that TAF was significantly better than TDF here. So this also suggests that while non-inferior in terms of efficacy, there is a better side effect profile. And I think the advisory committee as well as the FDA are going to see this as obvious and are definitely going to approve it for um, pre-exposure prophylaxis in HIV. So the event that's coming up, it's, it's a binary event, and the date is August 7th that's going to happen, but they're going to make the background material available no later than two business days before the meeting. So I want to put this trade on the 2nd of August in anticipation that the material is going to be released early. Um, at least it could be the 5th. So uh, I want to be mindful of that and, and hit the, the stock then. The analysis that I made is that I predict you know, two to three billion dollars in revenue recovered over the next eight to ten years if they are able to get approval of Discovy. And I think that Discovy would be taken up rather than Truvada given these side effects. I think the risk of low bone mineral density as well as kidney function is significant here. So I think patients are definitely going to want to take the, the best drug that's out there now. So I conservatively estimate that the risk reward ratio is about two to one skewed to the downside. So if the drug is not given the okay by the advisory committee, it would be down about 4%, whereas if it's approved, it should go up maybe about 2%. So what I want to do here is a, is a bull put spread, and I don't usually talk about options too much on this, but they are useful, and I like them because it's a very defined risk trade. Gilead closed today around 65.5, and what I'm going to do is do kind of a slightly out of the money uh, trade and this might all change tomorrow based on how the stock opens and I have no idea where it's going to open tomorrow but basically I'm going to sell the the put that's at the money here which is going to have a higher price than the one that I'm going to buy and in this way it's a risk defined trade but it's also reward defined trade so the max I can earn from this as of today is 49 cents per contract and the max loss I can lose is the difference between the legs minus the credit received so that's going to be 51 uh, sense, but I think the odds of it being approved are very high. So I'm going to open this tomorrow and close on the 7th or whether or not the the trade is at plus or minus 50%. If the meeting minutes come out on Monday and they're terrible and, this, and it all goes to hell, then I'm going to definitely just close the trade if it reaches 50%. But um, I'm not going to wait until the 9th just because a lot can happen between now and then. I'm really going to wait to see once the news gets digested, look at that stock move and then close out the contracts then. So with that, I uh, already mentioned that the Fed cut the federal funds rate by 25 basis points and the tariffs came in. We're midway through earnings season right now and most are actually beating and raising guidance, which is good to see. So the economy is still doing pretty well in the U.S. And I still have a big list of companies I want to look at. I think IOBA is going to be next on my list because they're another cell-based type therapy where they're looking at a unique cell type. So I think that's kind of the theme I've been following with Marker and Faye and Allogene, so I might keep that up. But... I want to thank everybody for watching. We are midweek, so I'm not going to do a portfolio wrap-up, but I do want to thank everybody for watching. Please like, subscribe, or leave me a comment, and also follow me on Twitter at Matthew Lapod, and we'll see you next time.